I do remember saying to him, less, less, do less, do less, do less, because he was just giving me like autopilot, Paul McCartney. So he said, what's the matter? Don't you like a bit of whimsy? And then I said, not, not when there's a war on Paul. It was me trying to be kind of dry and witty, but I think he read it as me kind of admonishing him. And there was this three or four seconds where that emerged and I really felt it. I just felt this incredible um, wave kind of come over me. I just realized that's it, that's it, that's it. Chris Floyd, welcome to Viewfinders Photography Podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Graham? Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's good to have you. I'm so, so excited. Yeah, i so looking forward to this. I got your, your book this week uh, in, in preparation for the chat, um, not just pictures, and I've been loving it. Insightful, it's funny, really well written, and I'm loving sort of delving into your work and some of your backstory, and I'm just excited and grateful to have this time with you. So, um, the book starts with a story about your grandfather, Sam. Um, can you talk a bit about Sam and what kind of guy he was and the influence that he had on you? Um, yeah, my my grandfather, he was called, well, he was born uh, Samuel Mordsky. Um His parents were Polish and uh, they came to London in about 19... 19- 10 um he ha- he was one of four children actually no i think he was there's more than that actually because his father was married his 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 mother was his father's second wife and his father's first wife died in a fire in paris so they went we know that they went from poland to paris the first wife died in a fire then he moved to london um around 1910 um, and then my grandfather was born in 1917 and, um, he grew up in Valence Road, which is, um, for anyone that knows East London, it's, it's one street over from Brick Lane. So there's Brick Lane and then parallel to the East is Valence Road. So if you look on a map, they're like two lines of a railway line side by side. Um, so he grew up there, that, that street, um, is famous for the fact that the Cray twins were also from Valence Road. Um, so if you know about the Cray twins, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about what that area was like. Um, but he, he was 20 years older than them. So, you know, they didn't, he wasn't someone, he wasn't familiar with them. But he was kind of familiar with the people that were their predecessors that sort of came before them. Um, and there was a, uh, nasty gangster called Jack Spot who was sort of the forefather of the craze who was the same generation so my granddad had this big scar on the side of his head from um, a knife slash from Jack Spot from his sort of teenage years Um, but then the war came along so he was 21 when the second world war began in 1939 and he, uh, I, I kind of mentioned this in the book. He said, he said, um, had it not been for the war, he would undoubtedly have ended up living a life of crime. But the war came along, and for some reason, he volunteered to join the navy. <clears throat> so they took him, and they trained him as an electrical engineer, and um, he served on uh, destroyers on the North Atlantic convoys. 
and then he also did um kind of convoys to south africa and the some of the i think he did the arctic convoys once um but they trained him as electric engineer and then after the war he started a, a um you know electrical business and then by the sort of by the late 50s that had grown to, to become quite a successful business and by the time sort of i was you know i was born in 68 so in the 70s when i was sort of you know in my formative years he had a factory in norfolk with about 100 people working there and they made um big 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 electrical equipment for for kind of um for big high rise buildings and stuff like that but so he, he sort of he, he pulled himself up and he he became pretty successful and he was the kind of person who really just loved life um he was not one to shy away from any kind of opportunity um he wasn't scared of anybody uh if he saw a chance he'd have a go at it and he loved he loved <laughs> he loved golf he loved drinking <laughs> he liked women um you know he liked traveling he loved America. I think from his time in the war, from going backwards and forwards across the Atlantic, he absolutely loved America and he loved going to America. Um, and um, he, he was just this, this incredibly kind of charismatic character who knew, who had, a, who had lived a life full of stories. And, um, and he really knew how to tell those stories and he really knew how to be, uh, he really knew how to kind of hold an audience you know, at, a, at the bar or at a dinner table or wherever. And I, that was a real big influence. My sister and I, my sister's four years younger than me. We we talk about him quite a lot and we, we kind of compare notes on our memories of him. But we basically have the same kind of, we have the same viewpoint is that he was, he was always the most dominant person in the room. And, um, and if you were in his presence, you had to, you really had to have something interesting to say. And if he, if he was, um, if he found what you were saying boring, he had no problem telling you it was boring or he just would lose interest and go somewhere else. So it was like a training ground as a child for learning how to be in the company of other people and to, and, and how to, um, how to kind of earn your place at the table in a way, you know, how to be, you have to be interesting, you know, as far as he was concerned, it was, it was a real crime to be boring. And, um, uh, you you had to have something to say, so so it was like a he was like a boot camp for not being boring. So that is a big influence on you, from what I can gather in the book. And you were saying, I think something like he he'd said that you should always have a story to tell in company. And so did you then decide that that you wanted to go out and sort of collect stories, kind of thing? Am I picking yeah, up well, right? I mean, this all really only kind of came about when I started doing this book, and I, the publisher said to me, "I want you to think about why um, why you should do this book," mm-hmm. and um, that's really where all this came from. Was I? I kind of that was sort of during one of the I forget which I forget which lockdown we were in, but it was one of the lockdowns, <laughs> and um, they all kind of meld. They all they all compress now into sort of one big mush, but. I kind of mulled it over for, you know, it sat in my head for probably two months. And then I went out for a bike ride one day. And then while I was sort of doing my bike ride, I, I, um, it just suddenly like a kind of, you know, like in the movies when, when a safe cracker 
is cracking the cot, and then all the all the all the locks of the safe all tumble into place, and that and you're yeah. in. It was that moment on the bike ride where yeah. I suddenly realised that's what this is all about. Um, so the connection with the grand, my granddad and, and and the book stuff is that I realised, oh yes, that's what I've been doing my whole life. Is I've been sort of obsessed with with always having a, not just coming back from a photo session with good pictures, but also I've I've, I've kind of su- uh, unconsciously. Um, been obsessed with coming back with a story to tell about how those those pictures came to exist and mm-hmm. sort of analyze always analyzing what happened on a shoot why did it happen why did i say that why did i say that why did he say that why did he say that you know um the sort of psychoanalysis of of um of getting into kind of intimate situations with people you know for the purposes of photography and then I just linked it all to to him. I realized, oh, that's it. You know, his. I grew up with all his stories about his childhood and then the war and then the 50s and the 60s. And then I realized that I was sort of trying to do something that would fundamentally impress him if I was to see him again and right. at Sunday lunch and I would have to have something to say. Okay, so that's been something that's maybe been subconscious rather than you've been like actively like I'm trying to go. Oh yeah, no, it was never. Yeah. It was never. It was. It was mm. never on the surface. It was never. It was okay. never active. It was. It was just. I just realised that that's why I do what I do. You know, mm-hmm. I never really um had thought about it that much before, and then and then it just all kind of fell into place. This is the that's the driver. Yeah, it's so interesting though. Like we just do what we're doing, but. When you have to put a narrative to it like that, like some pieces can fall in like that, like you said. So, um, so read in the book, you, you didn't feel like you fitted in at school, um, and then you found a David Bailey book in the school library. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. what was it about that that really shook you up or or changed your perspective? Well, I had been doing photography for when I was quite young. My dad had a Pentax thirty-five mil. And um, it was this sort of, it was this kind of holy object that was never really allowed to touch. And then at some point when I was maybe about 13, he sort of let me take a picture with it and and then let me take another one. And then after a while, he let me use it if I asked him. And then after a while, I didn't really have to ask him if I needed to use it. I could just use it. So I'd sort of developed this relationship with the camera, but it was it was a bit shapeless. It was just... It was just something I liked doing, and I would take pictures of pebbles or stuff like leaves on the trees, or just yeah, you know just stuff things, like that. Yeah. And um, but then at school one day in the library, in a sort of like a sort of uh, you know wet break uh, on a rainy day, I was in the library, and there was this David Bailey book called Black and White Memories, um, and I just sort of pulled it out, and it was full of. You know, it was all his 60s sort of really stark white background, square frame, Hasselblad, 60s portraits, you know, all his kind of iconic portraits. Mm-hmm. And it was like, um, it was just suddenly a realisation that photography had a purpose. Mm-hmm. You could do something with it and it could take you places. And who is this guy, David Bailey? And how come he, how come he's you know, got to, got to meet all these people, some of whom I had heard of, but that, you know, I knew who the Beatles were and I knew who Michael Caine was and I knew who mm-hmm. Mick Jagger was. Mm-hmm. But this Bailey guy, I'd never heard of him. So how come he gets to meet these people? And um, 
it just I just suddenly you know because up until that point when you're like 14 or so 15 your only real your only real uh, interaction with photography is is if you go if you're at a wedding or my mum took us to like a high street you know high street portrait photographer like a lot of people did back in those days mm-hmm. to have our pictures taken you know and um it's your only interaction with photography and that, and and that didn't look very exciting that you know so i was doing photography f- for a hobby or just I was curious about it, but the only real world applications for it that I knew of were, yeah, the high street portrait person and weddings. And I just thought, well, that looks a bit boring. I don't want to do that. But then all of a sudden there's this whole other world, this whole other door opens up and you realize that, oh, actually you can do really exciting things and meet exciting people. So did that set you on a path immediately or it changed how you were using the camera yourself? It changed how I used it. it. didn't set me on a path towards, towards you know, the life I've entered, but it did change how I used the camera. And I suddenly realized that people was where it was at for me. You know, I could use it to do cool stuff with people. And at that time, you know, I'm like 14 or so, I was in a drama group, like sort of village drama group. And I started to take pictures of um, like the other kids and stuff you know and and to be perfectly blunt about it it was um a really good way to meet to interact with girls in the drama group you know so you could take pictures of people and take pictures of the girls in the group and and it gives you a reason to to talk to them in a way that I would not have been able to before that um you know I'm very I'm quite a shy person actually and uh, given a chance to avoid contact I will take it rather than step towards it but you know it, that's really not a way to live a, a, lo- a great life to be honest yeah 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 I know it. I know what you mean <laughs> uh so the camera in a way I, I sort of force myself it forces me it forces me to to go towards people when my instinct is to step away mm-hmm. yeah. you know, when I don't have a camera when I'm not working I'm very whatever the opposite of forwards is Okay. Yeah. And and it's the camera that makes me do it. Um, So I sort of need it in order to sort of form relationships with people, meet people, have conversations with people. It kind of, I feel like it legitimizes my existence on this earth. Mm -hmm. And without it, I feel like my existence on this earth is illegitimate. Okay. Um, And, and, you know, and and I will sort of not talk to people because I can't think of anything to say, but magically, when I have a camera in my hand, I'm full of things to say. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear that. I have this similar, similar, um, where I would pull away, I would draw away and keep to myself, really. Your granddad would have hated me, I'm sure. But I I realised, like, it's it's stressful for me to do what I do, I'm I'm better on a one to one, but if it's like a group thing or a big event, or if I have to do a speaking thing, like it's really stressful. But I I just decide decided that if I don't go for those things, then I just stay in myself, and my world will be like this big, you know. Yes, um, and getting and getting smaller. Exactly right. So I definitely relate to that. But I'm surprised to hear you say that you were like that as well, because when I look at your photography it seems sort of kinetic. There's definitely like something going on in the between you and the subject. 
it's it doesn't feel to me like you know reading your photography like you're doing something to them it feels like they are definitely an active participant in the process does that resonate with you am i reading that right or are you saying like yeah, when, yeah. You, when you get going um, you're just in a different mode one of the things that i've thought about is how because i've done quite a few talks now um um although I do, this bit the this bit i've realized before before but but doing the talk the the event part of this has kind of uh compounded it is that um i very much feel like it's a performative job the way i work mm-hmm. and that when i'm doing my job i am on stage and i'm the I'm the attraction in a way, the act. Mm-hmm. And these people have come here to watch and they're the audience that's, you know, and I mean, the people I'm photographing are the audience and I'm, and I'm the person on stage and, and my job is to hold their attention so that they're as intrigued by me as I am by them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, but when it works, it's very powerful and it it buys you more time with people who in other circumstances might not be that bothered because mm-hmm. the lots of the people i photograph are used to having their picture taken it's not an exciting prospect for them you know you you get half an hour with paul mccartney and um i'm sorry but this is not half an hour that he's excited about yeah. in the way that it's half an hour I'm excited about. Yeah, yeah. So there's the power imbalance. There's this power imbalance because Paul McCartney, as I've said before, has met 50,000 versions of me mm-hmm. and I've never met any of him. Yeah. So there's this, like a seesaw, the power imbalance is completely off. And and what I, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a sort of conscious thing I've, I worked out. It's just, it's all in hindsight, I've sort of analyzed it and, realize that's what I'm doing so what I'm trying to do is bring that seesaw back to a more level mm-hmm. you're not going to get it completely level where there's e- equality mm-hmm. in, in the sort of power dynamic or the relationship but try and bring it back a little bit so that um, it can buy me five more minutes or ten more minutes of their time because they're curious about oh this you know you want them to go that photographer was um you know if at the end of it all they go that yeah that guy was all right Mm -hmm. i don't mind it wasn't awful spending half an hour with him yeah um because you know i just don't i don't want to be another person with a yeah with a plastic metal and glass head yeah (laughs) that they (laughs) um that they wouldn't recognize tomorrow and if they were next to me in a cafe you know yeah um, yeah so that that's that's the thing i realized is that i'm i'm performing and, and i'm on stage now and it's my job to hold their attention so that they don't leave the theater you know because we're mm-hmm. sort of in a i'm in a th- we're it's a sort of in my head it's it's a theater yeah and i'm on stage and that's it and um you know sometimes it goes wrong and they just think you're awful, <laughs> and then other times it works really well, and then you, you, they have fun with you, and they and they, and they'll walk away at the end and go, "Oh, I really enjoyed that. Actually, I was dreading yeah. it when I came here, but I enjoyed it." And if the, if you get that, then that's that's sort of the best you can hope for. Um, and then having done lots of talks recently, 
another thing I realized back going back to the thing about being sort of introverted and shy and stuff is that I'm kind of naturally quite comfortable with performing and I have no problem whatsoever being on stage with lights in my face and doing like you know some sort of play um but then when you come off stage I really find it difficult to talk to people being shy and introverted and a lot of performers are like that a lot of a lot of sort of people who are in entertainment a lot of comedy people are like that I think there's a weird thing of, of when you're when there's a certain type of person who when they're on stage is not intimidated and yet when they come off stage they're incredibly painfully sh- awkward and shy uh, and the thing about being on stage is that you're you're, you're there's a barrier there's a gap between you and the audience and you're just kind of performing at people. And when I do my, when I'm photographing people, I feel the same way, actually. It's not me. I'm a character. I'm a photographer character. I kind of have, you know, I have this alter ego who comes out. And that's who takes the pictures. And then the person I am now at home in my office is a completely different person. And, the, and I become this other thing to do the job. And I sort of, I find that guy slightly kind of embarrassing and cringy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But he's the person that gets the job done Yeah. in a way that this person here, this Chris that you're talking to now, really wouldn't be able to get the job done. Yeah. And I have to kind of make this transformation uh, <laughs> to do the job. And this might sound... Re- I mean, I'm just, this pro- probably sounds quite weird to everyone, to people listening. But I... I when I have a when I have a shoot to do, I really dread it. You know, I wake up in the morning full of dread and fear. Like, I, and and I've like, and it's like stage fright. I've got to go on stage now and do the show. And you know, what if it doesn't work? And what if the audience doesn't laugh? And what if you know, what if they get up and walk out? And and when I begin the shoot, I'm always nervous. I'm really tentative, awkward, bit. And, and I realized it's a sort of weird Jekyll and Hyde thing. I'm sort of in the process of transforming into this other person. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, and I fully become that person when I get to a point where I'm really happy with how the pictures actually visually look. Mm-hmm. You walk this tightrope between um, having to have a relationship with the subject in front of you. And at the same time, you're trying to manage the technicalities of the photography mm-hmm. and the lighting and what it actually looks like and how you want it to look. So there's this period where we begin and, uh, you know, the light, maybe you've set up in advance, but then you get the real person in front of the camera and the lighting doesn't look the same on them as it did on when you tested it on your assistant. Yeah. And it doesn't work in the same way. You're like, oh, it's not quite right. It, oh, I have to kind of adjust some lights, and there's there's that mo- there's kind of awkward moments where you you're not really in your rhythm mm-hmm. <clears throat> because you take two frames, you look at it on a computer screen. That's not right. That looks terrible. Oh, I've got to move the light. I've got to change the light. Got to t- you know, you got to do whatever you have to do. But when I get to a point where when I get to a point where I'm really happy with how it looks, then I feel like this other the the the, the alter ego is free to re- come out then. Yeah, and then and it's like yes, I found my place on the, I found my place on the keyboard on on the you know I found the chords. Mm-hmm. The lighting is sort of, it's like finding the right chords for yeah. this tune, and then once you kind of found your chords and it's and it, and it and it sounds harmonic, mm-hmm. um, or feels harmonic, then then I can I feel free. But but up until that point, I'm I'm really awkward and 
rambling. Yeah, I can relate to that. I don't know if this maybe normalizes it for you, but similar, very similar. Um, and uh, it's different for me. Like I'll have, you know, office people coming in front of me, um, whereas, you know, it's not Paul McCartney coming in, which is another, there are levels of pressure, you know. But um, I can definitely relate to that. And then it, the light never looks the same as it did in the test shoot, which is so annoying. But um, <laughs> do you feel, though, that you understand that rhythm on, on another level? There's all the dread in advance, but there's somewhere in you that you're like, oh, it's going to be okay because I've, it's always like this. Yeah, there's a point. I mean, my wife said it to me, you know, she's like, you've been doing it for 28 years. What makes you think you're not going to know how to do it today? Yeah. Um, and I'm like, yeah, but today might be the day. Today <laughs> might be the day where my, where it's just where I just seize up. Yeah. Um, but I think that's just a fear of. I'm also, you know, it, you know, complacency is a is a terrible is a terrible thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I think when you're complacent, though, that's when it would go wrong, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. So I think it's a, uh, it's almost. It, but it's also almost like a drug. The the adrenaline, <laughs> the kind of stage fright feeling before you <laughs> before before you're going on. You know, because mm-hmm. that's how I think of it. I got to go on now. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I, although, although there's no real audience to watch, I feel like I've got an audience. Um, yeah. So the I think the fear of you know of what of things that may go wrong is the is the sort of motivational force mm-hmm. that makes you just try that little bit harder you know that that bit in the race when you run as hard as you can you know yeah um, yeah the sort of uh mo farah thing yeah you know? survival or a, a fight or flight kind of feel yeah it, maybe it's funny because people often think that people who come in front of a photographer think that we've got it all worked out mm-hmm. and that they come in and then and often they're they're the nervous ones not so much for people who are used to being photographed, but, but you know, because I've I photograph all sorts of forms of human life, you know, um, and quite often people are really, you know, they're nervous. And then when I tell them that I'm as nervous as they are, they often can't believe it. Mm-hmm. They're like, "Why are you nervous?" And I'm like, "Because this is my one chance with you mm-hmm. today, um, whoever you are." this is my one chance with you and I want to get it right. I want it to be a good picture. I want, I don't want to go to bed tonight thinking, well, that was a waste of a day. Yeah. Um, so I'm nervous for that reason. And I'm nervous also that we have to have, again, whoever you are, you have to, you have to have a working relationship. You have to, you have to be able to, you know, communicate and also stretch for things that might be a bit awkward to ask for. Yeah. It's weird having your picture taken. Mm-hmm. You know, again, going back to having done various events for the book, I've had my picture taken more times in the last three months than I have in my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, it's horrible. It is actually <laughs> horrible. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to do with myself. You know, I did an I did a thing in Germany last week, and I got my picture taken there by two different photographers at this talk that I gave, and it was just absolutely teeth grindingly painful to be done but i could see how nervous they were as well yeah they were nervous 
Yeah. I think their nerves were making me nervous. Yeah. <laughs> you were just mirroring each other yes. the whole way. This is so interesting to me. I, I, I really wanted to ask how you start a session, you know, because I think, like you're saying, everybody gets that dread and the nerves. But in terms of setting a tone, like I do think it's because the subject's going to be nervous as well. They're looking to, to you to know what to do, you know, that you know what you're doing. And so I was wondering about setting the tone, whether you're imposing an idea. All your pictures are different, right? You're not having a, a go-to picture that you're doing again and again. So I I find that really impressive, actually. So I'm wondering, like, are you going in with an idea? Are you collaborating? Are you taking cues from the subject? How you how you actually get it going on the shoot? Well, I don't really ever go in... Sometimes there is an idea. Um, so if I'm, if I'm working for... Quite often with magazines, there's often not much of an idea. And and you're limited by time and location because, yeah, sometimes you're shooting a studio or sometimes you're in a location that you've had some choice over. But then other times you, you you've had no choice. You've got to go and photograph someone in their local pub because uh, that's the nearest place to their house where someone will let us take pictures. And, you know, I did that a while ago with Brian Johnson, the singer from ACDC. Mm-hmm. You know, he just wanted to do it. You know, he's 74 years old. It, it's just like, oh, can we just do it in the pub? Yeah. Um, so I went, had to go to his local pub and I had no idea what it was going to be like. And you get there and then you've got to just figure it out. So I don't have a go-to thing. But what I do tend to do is I tend to start off quite a long way away from them, like physically. Mm-hmm. So that so that I'm not in their face, you know, because it's, you know, if you only met someone t- 20 minutes ago, it's quite it's not it's not pleasant to, f- for you to then be you know, 12 inches away from them, yeah, with a camera and they can hear you breathing, you know, it's <laughs> so <laughs> the I you know I'm very respectful, physically respectful by by starting and then I, what I do a lot is talk, so. I just chat and ask them questions and, you know, what have you, what were you doing yesterday or what are you doing this morning or whatever, you know, you just, whatever comes into your head, you just, do you see that thing on the telly about X, Y, Z or whatever it might be. You're just finding, you're, I'm, I'm sort of searching around for some common conversational ground and just trying to show them that I'm just a person like them. Because actually back to the Paul McCartney thing again, um, you know, I've heard him say several times, you know, when I'm at home or on my own, I'm 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 the same me that I was when I was 12 years old in sharing a bedroom with my brother. Mm-hmm. There's this other Paul McCartney who's fa- really famous, and he's but he's a he's another per, he's another guy. Mm-hmm. So I always think of things like that because you realise that when you're photographing someone like that or whoever if they're famous you like you realize to them they're just the same person they were when they were 12 years old sharing a bedroom with their brother it's mm-hmm. only us that puts this um kind of magic fairy dust on them yeah so if you can find a way to connect with them on on beneath all that a, a, a level where a level where you're literally talking about do you have blue top milk or red top milk right you know, or whatever 
tea bags do you like? Mm-hmm. You just got to find a piece of common ground where normality can exist, mm-hmm. and, and it can exist comfortably and in a way that's enjoyable. So that's sort of where I start, and then at, while I'm doing that, I'm also doing the thing I mentioned earlier about faffing around with lighting and technicalities mm-hmm. and i'm using that time that conversational time so very often you know i've got an assistant so we can kind of communicate with our eyes you know without really having to use too many words so i can kind of nod my head in one direction look at him and he knows what i mean or i'll do some give a wave of my hand to him and he mean he knows that means you know push that light back or turn it down or change this or change that so I'm sort of doing two things at the same time one is I'm 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 actually trying to sort of make I'm kind of making the bed you know yeah um and the second thing is I'm trying to establish some kind of nice working relationship with them and I'm doing those two things simultaneously and the thing you have to then the thing I'm also doing while I'm doing all of that is trying to give off the appearance of of um, being like a swan in that don't want them to think that you're panicking yeah because often i i am panicking <laughs> inside i'm panicking about the about the photography element but but that's all below the so you're like a swan like with your little pad of feet paddling away yeah under the water but on the surface you try to look really graceful and elegant mm-hmm. so that the subject feels confident about what you're doing and that you're in command and you re- it's like going to the doctor isn't it you feel like when you go to see the do- a doctor who's who has a good bedside manner and makes you feel you're in safe hands, you feel better about all of it. And it's mm-hmm. sort of the same as that. I'm, I'm doing that. So that's, that's how it begins. And then where you go from there is it could, could be anywhere and it mm-hmm. depends, you know, what kind of person you are and also what mood I'm in that day. Mm-hmm. Some days I'm, you know, if I feel really tired, <laughs> yeah. I'll be, you know, quiet and not say much oh and it's i tend to mirror actually i reflect back what i feel i'm being given right so i think i'm i'm often quite reactive which can be good can be an advantage but it can sometimes be a disadvantage in that if they if i'm getting like passive aggressive vibes from someone yeah i tend to i mirror people in the wrong ways as much as the right ways okay you know, so if I'm met with someone who's really open and friendly, I'll be open and friendly. If I'm with some, if I'm with someone who's yeah, being sort of weirdly passive aggressive with me and sort of monosyllabic, I'll kind of reflect that back, and then and then that's not a good place to start. And you kind of have to break out of that. And at some point, someone has someone has to take the leap and try and break the the passive aggressive mood. Yeah, but it's got to be you. But it has to be me. Yeah. Yeah, it has They're to not be. Gonna do it. So uh, that that leads me into one I wanted to ask you about because so you've got your process there that you've described when it's going well you can just kind of go with it and see where it goes um, when it doesn't go so well there's a story in the book about your shoot with Damon Albarn it just sounded I mean I I was there with you it just sounded so painful <laughs> Do you wanna, like can you talk about how that one went down and i'm sure it's not a knock on him it's just like how the personality is lined up on the day or something like that but what happened there yeah um well i'd never photographed him before and i'm the same age as him so born in the same year also not so much now but 
you know, when I was in my 20s, people said that I looked like him. And I used to get it all the time. Right. Like, literally every day, someone would say it. So there's this whole bit. So there's this, all this baggage for me, yeah. which is that for 25 years, he's sort of been this figure in my life where people go, yeah, you know what you look like? You're like Damon Albarn. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, I get to go to photograph him. This is about... God, eight or nine years ago at his studio in West London. And so I've got all this kind of baggage that I've been carrying around for years. But of course, when I walk into his studio, he's, this is the first time in his life he's ever clocked eyes on me and he doesn't know my name or anything. So that that's a sort of that kind of seesaw imbalance thing. Mm-hmm. And also I'm a big fan, you know, I'm a big fan of his, really, really love Blur. And, I, and actually more than Blur, I love all the other things he's done outside of Blur. And um, I think he's a really, truly creative artist, you know. Mm-hmm. He's just, he seems to have an obsessive need to create create music, yeah. you know. And um, I think that's fascinating. So I was really excited about it. But when I, when I got to the studio, um, or his studio, we had set up a backdrop because, like, a, just a colorama, grey colorama. Because I got into the studio and it was visually, it was quite really, it was a mess. It was a mess, but sort of not a mess in a good way. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't think of what to do with the studio space because it was, it was full of quite, you know, all kinds of gear. But it, I just couldn't work out how to how to, to to start with this. So I thought I'll put the backdrop up, and then at some point later I'll be able to figure out how to use this space to do something else. But I'm going to start with the backdrop. It's sort of like starting with a sorbet. You know, like it's just fresh, clean, easy. Yeah. Anyway, he came in and he sort of took a dislike to the fact that I put a back nine foot colorama up in this studio. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "What?" He goes, well, "It's a bit formal, isn't it?" I was like, "Well, you know, I I like to take pictures of people on backdrops sometimes." And um, so he sort of begrudgingly went in front of it, and um, and he was just very monosyllabic and and anything i tried to say to him he responded to with sarcasm it was like his default response to anything was was kind of a slightly sort of teenagey sarcasm surly sarcasm and it just got harder and harder and and um so that thing i said you know the thing we said about you know mirroring mir- mirroring people mm-hmm. so i realized that i was doing the same i was kind of not being sarcastic but i was mirroring him with my own form of uh, monosyllabic surliness. But then I realised, you know, you've got to break out of that. You've got to stop because it's not, it's just going to be a kind of like race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I said this whole thing, I've got this theory I've got about, about portraiture and this thing that I call the collaboration confrontation line, mm-hmm. where there is this imaginary line between you and the subject and for it for it to work you have to meet each other somewhere on this line and at one end of the line is collaboration and at the other end of the line is confrontation and you can meet at the collaborative end or you can meet at the confrontational end or you can meet half and half in the middle but wherever you meet you have to meet somewhere so i started to kind of explain this my theory of my theory of portraiture and he just cut me off like within two sentences and he just put his hand up and said listen i've had my picture taken more times than you've had hot dinners I know what I know what a good photograph is. I don't need you to tell me. Mm. 
he said something like he definitely said I know what a good photograph is I don't need you to tell me um, so that I, I don't know it just came out of my mouth the response it was one of the rare moments in my life where you know that thing where you always think of the, the you always think of the good response later yeah <laughs> in this occasion it actually came out of my mouth at the time that I needed it to come out so he said you know um, I know what a good photograph is I don't need you to tell me um I said, well, I know what a good record is, but um, just because I know what a good record is doesn't mean I know how to make one. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he kind of nodded and he gave this kind of wry smile as if to say it was like, good one, you know. Mm. He sort of appreciated the the response from me and, he re- and it, it was a moment where he realised I was kind of equal to him for a moment, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of my ability to not fight back but to but to you know to give yeah. a robust response yeah so we the, he, there was some respect there then so there was a period of respect and it was going quite well for a few minutes and then i wouldn't say that i got complacent i just felt more confident and then subsequently i must have said something quite anodyne and bland and then he kind of cut me right down with um he said uh, oh you were doing so well <laughs> and that was the, just the silence yeah. and then inside internally i re- it felt like i was walking on absolutely firm ground and then suddenly my legs just went into a patch of quicksand yeah and i just dr- i just went straight and i could feel myself drown you know going under yeah Yeah. and then um i'm not sure that we really recovered after that um did some more stuff and then um yeah the end bit was when we were packed all the gear away and we we were taking it out to put in the car and um and uh, someone that worked in his studio pointed at a couple of flight cases you know but uh, that were mine by the door and damon because they look the same as flight cases that sound equipment is in yeah so he had loads of similar looking cases in the studio so anyway, what someone at work for him pointed at my flight cases by the door and said what are they and damon damon just goes um oh i think they're the photographers like that and at right. that point i realized oh god he doesn't even know my name yeah <laughs> and then he's this presence that's been in my life in my sort of hinterland for all these years of people telling me i look like him and i realized on the other side of the fence, he has no idea what my name is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. then I couldn't look at the pictures for about, oh, I don't know, about a week, maybe 10 days. So you just must have left feeling not so good about that day. Yeah, like pr- re- like profoundly depressed. Yeah. Like unbelievably gloomy. Mm-hmm. And um, like a real feeling of failure. Mm-hmm. You know, like even after, at this point, 20 years of doing this I just couldn't I just couldn't um I couldn't find a way in and it's it, it's it's it was so for for a week or so it was so such a it was such a kind of confidence destroying moment mm-hmm. um that you you really question yourself and you you know like what's wrong with me why am I so crap um, sort of st- standing in front of the bathroom mirror, hitting myself in the face, you know, that, yeah. 
But then there's like a sort of informal somewhere in the ether in the in the yeah there's a there's this strange informal support group for photographers who've had similar encounters with Damon. <laughs> really? <laughs> and what's really interesting is that they are all men. Right. And then all the female photographers that I know who have met him have all said the same thing, which is, oh, he's absolutely lovely. Right. He's a, I, he's a joy to photograph. I love it when I, when I have to photograph Damon. All the men, male photographers, all, have all had the same experience as me. Mm. And so... In hindsight, what I kind of learned from that was that he's just someone who is a certain way with people like me, mm-hmm. and there's nothing I can do about that. So I'm I'm okay with it now. I realised that, that it was really just a clash of personalities in a way, or not not it's not clash isn't even the right word actually. It was just a com. It's a compound. It's an unstable compound. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think he seems to really enjoy the company of women more than men and he seems to like being photographed by women and um that's a different type of compound yeah so you realize that some compounds are just yeah it's an unstable compound and it's never gonna work so you know it took a while but you realize you you can't blame yourself for everything you know it's not always your fault so when you went back to look at the photos then after some time had passed how did you feel about those pictures that you felt like you actually did capture something there? Well, what I realized was that what I can do to them in sort of post-production or printing is, because when I shot them, they were actually quite light. Oh, right, okay. You know, the skin tones were quite light. The background was quite light. They were quite airy. Mm -hmm. And then I just went the complete opposite way. I just made them really, really heavy Mm -hmm. and dark, like made his, you know, you know, uh, print you know if it was traditional darkroom printing i would you know they're, they're basically printed about two stops darker than okay. than i i had originally intended them to be which is one of the miracles and joys of doing stuff digitally is mm-hmm. you, you've got enormous scope for kind of post shoot manipulation um and i just thought well I'm, i just it, it, well it wasn't even a conscious i just started playing around with them and trying to take produce an image that reflected my experience of of what it was like to photograph him, which was it was really claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. It became a very claustrophobic um, experience and dark, you know, d- d- like psychologically dark for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure he didn't think, as I said many times, he didn't give me a second thought the moment I left the building. Yeah, but for sure, um, those that portrait of him is sort of representative of how I felt um so it, it's possibly that that picture says more about me than it does about him yeah well yeah okay don't they all i mean we could go down <laughs> that <laughs> yes that's um avadon isn't it yeah yeah um, yeah yeah so i was reading the uh, not in the american west there's a book about the making of it but which is written oh the laura um laura wilson yeah yeah i've got that book i I actually like that book more i mean i love in the american west but the her book is more is actually the one that i pick up yeah uh, so interesting you know i pick up again and again so then so people were complaining you'll probably know this but they were complaining about how they they were represented or their relatives were represented in the in the project 
and Abaddon was going, look, the picture's not even about you, it's about me. Yeah. Um, so, anyway. Um, so, yeah, I, I really wanted to pick up on that collaboration confrontation line. I thought it was such a brilliant way of encapsulating what we do because yeah. so many people come in a bit defensive or a bit wary for for their good reasons and uh, other people are just fine and you just you always have to work that collaboration confrontation balance i just never heard it put that way but it's, it's so accurate um uh, and the picture of damon alburn as well i would just to finish off on that one you really captured like whatever the connection was between you you got it because his, he seemed like you captured a moment of him being terse or pissed off or whatever mm. but i think because i was thinking for me doing corporate kind of stuff i need to pick a nice picture of nice people doing a nice thing in a nice place when it's what you do with musicians that kind of thing maybe it, it doesn't have to be that way so do you feel like there's more room for you know it could be whatever as long as the intention is there um, well, often I have to take a nice picture for whoever it is I'm working for. Um, but then I'm always looking for something for me mm. as well. Something that's a bit, uh, maybe deeper or, you know, more revealing. That's kind of use that's for posterity mm -hmm. because often I feel that, yeah, that's who I think I said that in a book is who I work for ultimately is posterity and, and, you know, if the, if the work that I do here, I'm trying to do something that's going to have some kind of life after I'm gone. You know, whether it goes, you know, the national, I've got some stuff in the National Portrait Gallery, you know, I mean, that's obviously kind of a national institution. So, you know, they're, they're as good as anyone if, for preserving things. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying to do something that will live on long after we're all gone. So that you're working on a superficial level, which is who's paying you today, and 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 can you deliver what they need for their needs? Mm -hmm. And then there's this other thing. Well, I've got a person in front of me here who who may be you know remembered in a hundred years time. So I'd like to do something that in a hundred years time, when they say what did that person look like, that they they might find my picture of them and mm -hmm. um and and use that as the sort of uh, defining image of that person mm -hmm. so that's the sort of i'm serving two masters actually i'm serving the, the people that pay me and i'm serving my other master which is posterity i wanted to ask if it's okay about two more pictures yeah of course i you know when i do this podcast i have a list of people that i want to talk to and i've been really lucky to talk to some real heroes and um one name on the list i just would never approach because i he seems like such a wild card and I just don't, I know I couldn't handle him. Um, is David Bailey. Right. Um, so I was really interested that you'd spent time with him and um, I, it's such a, a lovely story actually. And I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about that experience. Obviously a hero of yours, um, influential. So what was it like to spend that time with David Bailey? Um, well, it came, it came via Lucy Davis, who used to work at the Telegraph, the Telegraph had a really good photography blog on their website that she that she ran, and she um, emailed me and said, "Oh, I, I really want to do a thing where where a photographer from one generation has a conversation with a photographer from another generation, 
and then just talk about how how things have changed you know and and compare notes basically on a sort of generational level mm-hmm. would you be would you be interested in doing it and i said yeah of course you know i'd love to who <laughs> who do you want the other person to be and she said um well i was thinking of asking bailey and i you know i kind of i couldn't I was like, well, uh, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, of course, I'd love to. So what happened was she talked to his Bailey's PA and they came back and said, um, yeah, he's up for it, but um, he'd quite like to meet Chris for, you know, half an hour uh, to just have a chat and see if Bailey, if he likes him, see if Bailey likes me enough to be bothered to do it. So can Chris come to the studio and just, you know, pop in and say hello. And if Bailey likes him, then maybe he'll do it. <laughs> so it was like pressure's on. <laughs> yeah. Be likeable. The day I went to see him was the 1st of March, uh, 2011. And, um, the reason I always remember it was the 1st of March because that is St. David's day. Right. And uh, as I walked down the, down Gray, his studio is off Gray's Inn Road in London and as I walked down Gray's Inn Road I actually stepped on a crushed daffodil on the pavement I'm not making this up okay. um, and you know just this thought came into my head I'm, it's St David's Day but the David I'm going to meet is no saint as well. <laughs> um, so I get there and um, he's got the studio he's been in for years and years and years and you go in it's in a muse this cobbled muse and you sort of go in through the door and then up some stairs and then the studio is sort of like upstairs on the first floor and it's the whole upstairs it's mm. a huge space love really lovely like really well lived in you know it's a space that he's obviously been in for a long time mm. and is you know it's got his life in there so when i arrived he was he was he was in the middle of the room on a stool on like a bar stool with a cape around him having his hair cut <laughs> And I come in and uh, he's like, are you Chris? And I said, yeah, he said, come in, come in, sit down, sit down, sit down. Um, uh, You know, do you want a cup of tea? Has anyone offered you a drink? And I was like, no, no. He goes, do you want a cup of tea? And then someone made me a cup of tea. And then then we were just, so we were chatting while he was having his hair cut. And, you know, I'm still a bit nervous, but I realised quite quickly that his way of speaking and the sort of, and the kind of rhythmic pattern, the pattern of his voice reminded me of my grandfather mm. so from the same part of the world. And um, he just completely reminded me of my, my granddad. Same, exactly the same personality type. Right. Um, when you were talking about your granddad earlier, I, I made that link and I was going to ask you. So that's super interesting. Yeah. So it was... Uh, and I just, uh, and then when I realized I had that, that, when I realized that, I was like, "Oh, I know how to deal with this. I know, I know how to deal with this totally." Right. You know, um, and you just got to rise to meet them. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, you have to rise up and meet them on their level, um, and give back to them what they give to you. Because the thing about Bailey is, he's incredibly, he's very funny, but he's also can be dismissive and flippant and say things you know he's so unwoke that you know i just i mean he just he just couldn't he he, his type can't exist anymore Mm -hmm. you know culture has 
spread people like him out, which is sort of a shame because he's a fantastic, incredibly complex character. And um, so the bit that really made me laugh was when the, he introduced the guy cutting his hair as, as um, Kashmir. He said, this is Kashmir. He cuts my hair. And um, Kashmir is this like, kind of really good looking guy in his maybe early 30s, dark, swarthy, you know, very, very, really handsome, like a sort of young Omar Sharif kind of look to him. Right. And um, he's introduced him as Kashmir and then that's it. And then they finish the haircut and Kashmir sort of t- finishes, takes the cape off him, the barber's cape thing, you know, and um, leaves. And obviously he cuts Bailey's hair regularly. So he comes and goes and, you know, he's, he doesn't hang around. He finishes and says, thanks a lot, everyone. See you soon. Bye. And then when he, as he went out the door, I said to Bailey, what a fantastic name that is for a hairdresser. Kashmir. And Bailey just like wafts his hand, like really dismissively and goes, oh, that's not his real name. That's just what I call him. <laughs> and um, I go, well, what's his real name then? He goes, oh, I don't know, Gianni or something. <laughs> I just call him Kashmir because he looks like a Kashmiri carpet salesman. <laughs> and, and, um, it was just this way that he he just had given he'd just given a persona and a name to this guy based on the fact that that's what Bailey thought he looked like, and yeah. the guy was completely and utterly fine with it and had no problem whatsoever. And and then there was just this um, we just got on like a house on fire, I think, and and. Um, because I realised that really I just talked to him like how I would have talked to my granddad, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and I and he he mentioned something about the Crays actually, the Cray twins. He mentioned something about their mother, the Cray twins' mother, and then and then I said, oh, my granddad comes from Valance Road, and then and then he really wanted to know about all that. Then when I told him that, mm-hmm. and then that you know that thing I said earlier about finding a way to make yourself make them curious about you. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the point at which he was curious about me suddenly right? because I had a link to, you know, to that world, mm-hmm. the world that he's from and, you know, a world that I'm not far removed. You know, I, I didn't grow up there, but I know every, a lot about it from my family. So th- then suddenly I have, there's something about me that makes him curious about me. And then, and then we just talked all day. Like it was supposed to be half an hour, a cup of tea, say hello, go. But, it got to like three o'clock and, um, you know, I got there at like 10 and, um, right. it got to three o'clock and I was like, I've got to go. Cause I had to go and pick up my daughter from school. And, um, I was like, I've got to go. I've got to go. And he's like, you can't go. You haven't seen my dark room yet. And, uh, you know, suddenly it was like he, I, suddenly I couldn't get rid of him. Right. Was, <laughs> um, you know, I've got to go and get my daughter. I can't, I can't be late. He's like, come on, look, let just, just, let me show the dark room. So we went downstairs to his dark room and um, we just stood in there chatting while he did a print. I wish I could remember what oh. the picture was now, but I can't. But anyway, we stood in the dark in the, while he did some black and white printing and chatted a bit more. And then, and then he said, you know, um, I don't know if I want to do this, uh, this thing for the Telegraph. He goes, you know, I don't feel particularly good about magazines anymore. Um, so I don't know if I want to do it, but, I've really enjoyed meeting you and, but I might do something else with them. And if I do, maybe you could come and take my picture for it. Mm. And that's what happened. So he, we never did our sort of head to head thing, but he did this other thing. Uh, and I went and did his portrait for it. 
so I went back a second time and uh, and photographed him then. And then that was quite funny as well, just him sort of playing mind games with me <clears throat> over my sort of camera setup. Right. <laughs> just sort of taking the piss, really, you know. He was like, what, what shutter speed have you got? What shutter speed have you got? And I'm, I was like, it's the 60th. Or a 60th, and he went. You sure? It sounds like a, sounds like a 30th to me. Um, and I was like, stop trying to mess with me. <laughs> He's like, can't help it. Um, so yeah, it was a real that thing of like never meet your heroes. But I I loved meeting him, and I, and it's the it's the the only time I've ever met him. That well, those two occasions, the first mm-hmm. one, and then going back to do his portrait. The picture that's in the book. The main, the first big picture, I got him to say to me, you fucking what? Like four or five times. Right. So he's got this look on his face of sort of almost like of hatred, you know, (laughs) because I got him to look in the camera and I go, just say you fucking what? And he went, you what? I went, no, you fucking what? And he went, you fucking what? You know, like he's going to like kick my head in. And I just go and say it again. He goes, you what? You fucking what? (laughs) Um... And we did it like five or six times. And I just love that, you know, the sort of confrontation uh, of it. But it was a real magic moment, actually, that, you know, really, really fantastic moment. You know? Yeah. But to be asked to photograph him by himself, it's, that must have been right up there. Yeah. and the fu- But the funny thing was, was also, was, again, it was almost like the conversation I had with him while I was photographing him was the most interesting thing and and it almost i wasn't really even that bothered about the pictures you know mm-hmm. of him i had the camera most of the time that that shot that's in the book was um handheld on a 35 mil but there's a whole load of other pictures more kind of formal sort of portraity pictures that I shot on a medium format with the camera on a tripod mm-hmm. i was just using the deck well i shot some with light some lighting and then i shot some because he's got this skylight roof. So he was sort of un- sitting underneath that. So it's very toppy daylight above his head. So I shot some. That was the 30, 60th of a second stuff. And um, I was just, I was almost like not even looking in the camera. I was, I had the camera sort of locked, the focus locked on his face with the camera at kind of sort of waist height on the tripod. And then I was standing up and I was just sort of talking to him and I was just, just pressing the shutter while we were talking. So some of the pictures aren't even in focus. Some are, some are, some aren't. They're completely sort of loose mm-hmm. um, because I was actually just really enjoying the act of standing there photographing him, mm-hmm. and it was almost like that was more important to me than what the camera was recording in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I don't know why I thought like that. It was because afterwards I was just thought oh, I, sh- I should have paid a bit more attention to what I was actually doing. But I was just in really enjoying just being in the moment of just standing there talking to David Bailey while taking his picture. Yeah, I can understand. You just wanted to maybe stay in the moment and not break that by interrupting with interruptions and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, because I knew that what I could get out of him conversationally mm-hmm. was going to be more valuable than the pictures that I might get. Yeah. I think, you know, in terms of his, you know what he said about how he would how he does what he does. Mm-hmm. But he said the same thing. You know, I just, I just talk to people. I just talk, 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 talk. And it was sort of quite reassuring to hear that because sort of that's what I, I do. 
Because mm-hmm. you're just trying to, you're just trying to for, forge a connection with the other person. I think you want to go away from the at the end of the day feeling that you've had, um, you know, I met a new person today, and they're they they exist and they live on this planet at the same time as me, and that was uh, quite a, quite a valuable thing, you know, on a sort of existential level, anyway. So, um, okay, let's take a minute, Chris, to talk about the gear that you use. You must have used different gear over the years, but also interested about how the profession that goes around the craft of what you do. Um, so to give people an insight into, say the phone rings, they're saying, okay, we want you to photograph this person. What happens next and how does that timeline go in the in the world that you're working in? Uh, well, if it's a magazine, say, yeah, they'll say quite often what they do is they don't tell you who the person is. They tell you, they ask you about the date first. Are you free for a job on such and such date? So you can go two ways. You can just say, yes, I am. And then you've got to kind of accept whatever it is. You know, it could be Jimmy Cranky. It could be God, you know, but you don't know. So, yeah, are you free on such and such a date? Okay, yes, I am. I generally always say yes. And then they'll go, okay, great. It's this person. How do you feel about that? And then generally, with almost very few exceptions, I'll just say yeah, because that's what I do. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not here to make judgments about people mm-hmm. based on how I feel about them personally. I'm here. I'm a professional. And my job is to... So And also, it's just nice to work, to be perfectly... Br- br- brutal about it yeah uh, it's nice to work and it's nice to get paid and it's <laughs> nice to have a day doing something rather than a day of doing nothing so um that's it and then so that's the day okay we've got them at from this time to that time or we've got them for a whole day or half a day and then there'll be a conversation about any ideas that the magazine may have had in advance and what do you what do i think about it and how would i go about it um or they may say, what do you think we should do? Just go to a studio or quite often, you know, you can go to a rent, uh, uh, you know, a location house. So, you know, there is a whole world, particularly in London, of um, film location location houses where people, you know, people people put their houses up as film shoot locations. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a whole world of millions of interesting spaces. So maybe we'll do that. Or maybe we have no control over it at all and we've got to go to wherever the subject is, a location of their choosing, or it might be a hotel room or someone's office, which is always um, a dreaded one mm-hmm. because an office is an office. It's not a photographic location. So that, that there's that. And then and then really from there, it's that, that's kind of it. And then... Um, and then I'll think about how I might do it if I know what the location's like, or if it's a studio. I'd start thinking about how I would, how I want to sort of light them, or and then you've got things like styling, like what they're wearing, hair and makeup, particularly if it's a woman, and then that's sort of it really. And then and then you're in all thrown in a room together at the same time, and whatever you come up with is what you come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm quite spontaneous in that I tend to just enjoy, I mean, making it up as I go along is, is not quite that, 
because that just sounds like you're just going in any one of 360 different degrees. Mm. But what I really like doing is having some semblance, some outline of an idea or a concept. And then once you kind of have the demarcation, the you know, the outline of the, if you think of it as, if you think of it as staking out a plot of land for where you're going to build a house, we're going to build the house here. Here's, here's the, we bang the stakes into the ground. This is where the house is. But then once you get inside that plot of land, how you build that house is a bit more freeform. Okay. And you can kind of, you know, I like to have room for spontaneity inside a kind of formal, semi-formal idea. Okay. That's for me is a really nice way to do it. And also, I think it's really important in your work to keep an area where new, interesting things can happen. So you you can kind of get the you get your safe result, the thing that you know the client or the magazine or whoever is going to be happy with. Mm-hmm. And then once you've got that, once you know that's kind of <clears throat> in the bag, you then kind of carve out a bit of time and space for yourself to do something a bit different, something that may not work. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a kind of, it's allowing, it's allow, you have to allow new things, you have to allow naivety to flourish inside a professional space. Mm-hmm. So, because that's how you prevent yourself from becoming jaded and mm-hmm. repetitive. So it's interesting that you said earlier, you know, you said something about my pictures are all kind of different mm-hmm. and kinetic was the word you used. Yeah. Um I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that there's always, I always try and at least, if I've got, say, four pictures to do, they say, if the magazine says, oh, we need four shots, four different looks, four different outfits, you know, I'll try and make one of them, the fourth one, like just something completely wild. Mm-hmm. You know, as in, let's just try this. We've got half an hour left. Let's just have a go at something bonkers, you know, and see what happens. Yeah. Um, because that's that's how you do, that's how you get more quivers in your arrow. More, I'm sorry, more arrows in your quiver. Right, you know, if you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sort of think of what I do as I feel like a, yeah, it's like having a quiver full of arrows on your back, and each of those arrows represents a style or technique or a way of doing things. And by having a little area of your work where you try new things, it's it's a way to make new arrows. Mm-hmm for your quiver <laughs> yeah. it's, quite, it's kind of quite a weird word isn't it <laughs> um but that's yeah does that make sense that just just trying to and also and being upfront and honest about it actually with people and saying look i'm going to try this i've no idea if it'll work or not yeah not work it might fail terribly but it may it may succeed tremendously mm-hmm. and will have made something interesting and new um, and if you have already done three or four pictures before that where they've worked and the people are happy with you, yeah, you kind of it demonstrates that you have a confidence in your own ability to create something in the moment. Mm-hmm. And people generally really respond to that positively because you've already done we've done three pictures, four pictures, and the people in the room really like what you've done. So you've shown that you can do it. So let's try something new. It's like we've, you know, we, let's just have a go at something. And people kind of generally get quite excited by that usually. Mm-hmm. Is there an example of when that's really, really worked out and that's become like 
the banger shot from the session? Quite often, the banger shot comes completely uh, from serendipity. There's a White Stripes picture in the book that is, they're asleep on the yeah. couch. I mean, it's, it's technically and photographically, it's, there's nothing to it. It's just, a, it's really a, a snapshot. But the thing is, is they, they were jet lagged. They come from Los Angeles to London. And they were completely jet lagged. Um, halfway through the shoot, while we were changing the setup, they felt they both fell asleep on the sofa in the studio, <laughs> and in their white stripes clothes. And I just turned around and I was like, "That's the picture there." And um, we were shooting with a ten eight plate camera, actually. Oh, wow. And um, so I had to sort of wheel that around, load it with a f- couple of sheets, and um, get shoot. Yeah, those frames. Um, and that's my favourite picture from the whole shoot. Um, that one of them asleep. And it's it's nothing to do with me. It's entirely brought about by the circumstances of the day. And I had no input or control over it. It just happened. Yeah. But it's, it's also about having the grace to acknowledge that sometimes fate can deliver you better results than your own obsessive need for control yeah i think you obviously have that openness though for that also comes about from actually being confident in my own abilities as well if i was really insecure and doubtful about my ability to deliver good pictures i would be more probably more reluctant to acknowledge that the one that i had nothing to do with yeah uh, is the best picture by doing that what i'm saying is look i know i can do, do it but on this given day, this fell out of the sky into our laps, and um, don't look at don't look the gift horse in the mouth, sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And, um, so it's um, that's really also a way of saying the subtext of that is, is is that I've got confidence in my in myself to acknowledge when someone else's ideas may be better. Yeah. I think it's a way of showing that you can be collaborative with people and not. Um, overly controlling and dictatorial and stuff yeah and so but you shoot with assistance presumably like you said there's other crew around so I guess I mean photography it's it's kind of you but when you're working with a crew like that there's already that collaborative nature and there's the collaboration with the subject yeah yeah totally but we still need we still kind of want to control it but I just what I'm getting at I suppose anyone else or somebody else would have looked at them and gone, oh, the guys are sleeping. Let me set something else up over here. Whereas yeah. you've had the openness and um, receptability to, to see that as an opportunity, right? Which I think it says a lot about your work, actually. It's also, after the afterwards, looking at all the pictures, the whole shoot, and, you know, that was all shot on film. That's all pre-digital. Um, you know, I had all these ideas for them. I was really excited about the white stripes i love that you know they were you know great music and a great image you know and um it's looking at all the results afterwards when you've got all spread out on a table and i've got all these things in front of me that were my ideas and then looking at the one picture that wasn't my idea (laughs) and sort of having the courage to say you know what that's the best one you know the point I think what I'm trying to say is is that it's not in our control. It's 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 having the awareness to 
recognize that what happens to us in life is not in our control it, uh, no matter how much we think we might be in charge of our destiny on a sort of deeper philosophical level we're not and that that image for me sort of represents that on a on a on a kind of micro you know in a small little way it just represents in this world where this is the photography is the one part of my life where i probably have more control over what i do than any other part of my life i've got teenage children what they do when they go out of the house is completely beyond my control. I'm married. What my wife does when she goes out of the house is beyond my control. You know, if there's a thunderstorm and a tree falls down in the garden, it may or may not come through the roof. That's beyond my control. But in my little world of photography here, that I can control. Um, and then inside this world that I can control, I've ended up with a result where I've, the best image is something that I couldn't control. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so it's just, I mean, I've never thought of any of this before. I'm just saying this out <laughs> now, you know, it's just in a sort of sued, sued's corner, you know, philosophical way. Um, and if you can acknowledge that oh, what happens is what happens on any given day. And if you can be all right with that, then you can sort of go get up in the morning and go into the day um, with a sort of open mind about things and just let, you know, Sometimes you can steer events or guide events, but you can't can always control them. Yeah. So I know photographers and friends who are obsessively controlling about everything they do. And the fact is, is they're, they're stressed by it. They, they're never satisfied because the more things that you can control, the more things that you are, the more successful you become, the more, you know, the more um, respected you are in your career, the more money you might earn. Those are resources. Those are things that give you the power to control things more. So the more the more you can control, the more things there are that you then need to control. Right. It's like an it's an exponential thing that will never get that will never stop getting bigger. So people I know who are controlling about what they do, the reason they're so stressed and sort of anxious a lot of the time. It's because there's always new things that they feel like they they have to get under their control. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. It does yeah. to me. It and makes that, sense. But if, if you give it all up and just go, oh, fuck it. I can't control any of it. But I can steer some things mm -hmm. and guide them and, and be open-minded and have my eyes open to what's going on. Yeah. And react to things as much as... I can try and guide things then then you sort of can live quite a balanced life mm -hmm. you know because it's a weird thing isn't it being self-employed being doing what we're doing we're entirely at the whim of people who may or may not feel like giving us a job today <laughs> yeah <laughs> and no matter how many you know lists we make of potential clients that we can target and email and send mail chimp things to you know, we're entirely at their whim. You know, the number of times I've sent things to people and they've said, oh, God, if only you'd sent me this last week, we had a great job that you would have been perfect for. Um, and those are the only ones you ever hear of. <laughs> you know, I never hear it. I don't think I've ever had, I don't think I've ever sent any kind of mail out to anyone. And they said, you've hit me at just the right time. I've got the perfect job for you. How do you fancy going to Alaska for two weeks next month? You know? <laughs> um they, that never happens. I always get, 
I always get, oh, God, if only you'd email me last week. Um, so, yeah, no matter how much we try and think we're in control of what we do, we're really at the whim of someone in an office somewhere else just going, uh, need some photography. Who should, we, who should we get? You know, that that's, the, yeah, and we're not in control of that at all. Yeah. I was wondering, um, you said earlier about you make the bed, right? Yeah. And I I, I think what I, the way I took it and the way I frame it to myself is I make, I create like a framework when I'm working, like a technical thing with lighting yeah. and whatever else yeah. and the camera and the settings and everything. Once that's ready, I'm, I'm, I can relax and work within that more freely. If it's not in place properly, I don't feel comfortable, I don't feel confident, and I don't feel like I'm in control. But uh, once yeah. I, I think once I've got the framework, I don't know if this is exactly what you were saying, but when certain things are in place to allow me to have the conditions that I need to do my best work, then I'm happy and I can be relaxed. Yeah, that's, exact, that's exactly it. That is exactly it. Okay. It's the same thing. It, it's the, once everything is in its right place, it's, it's about a need for, to kind of establish a kind of order over, over the situation, I think, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And but, if everything feels calm and orderly and it, as it, how you, how you would like it to be, then you feel like you're ready to take the step number one forwards. All that stuff is getting you to the start line. Yeah. And now now I'm ready to kind of run the race. I must ask about this. You won't be surprised. It's about Paul McCartney. And um, I was reading this story in the book. I can relate to the anticipation, the dread. You get you got there and then the sense that it was slipping away. And then you had to speak up and sort of speak back to Paul McCartney. Yeah. It just, I was just gripped by this whole story. Um, can you give us a, a quick run through of that one? Um, it goes back to some of the things I was saying earlier in that you're, or well, I'm highly aware of, um, yeah, of this, this thing that I think of as the power imbalance. And he's just not that bothered. Not because he's rude or uncaring but because it's something he's done like a million times before he's been doing it for you know since he was 20 years old but for me it's everything you know i'm a the first that in going back to that story about the bailey david bailey book in the school library the the first picture i saw in that book was bailey's picture of john lennon and paul mccartney right that's insane <laughs> that was the one that hit me really hard that just something so elegant in the simplicity of it the sort of monochromaticness, and so that's the there's this whole link from from that to, and then I you know I'm an absolutely huge Beatles obsessive, read lots of books about them, got all the records, got all the solo records, you know, so he's sort of tight. He he in a nutshell represents everything. Why I got into photography was because. I saw that picture of him and Lennon by Bailey at the age of 14 or so, 15 maybe. And it hit me sort of, it just was so, it just seemed so exciting. And here he is right now in front of me, you know, and it's the same person and he's right now in front of me. So there's all this baggage 
that I that I'm carrying, and I'm sort of it's like psychologically I'm walking into the room carrying in a massive suitcase that's really heavy, and he of course can't see that and doesn't know about that and doesn't also doesn't really care. But as I said, not in a mean way. He's really nice. He's you know he's very um, kind of breezy and friendly and and you know warm and i think he really tries he really it's not that he tries i think he just is open to just you know he'll chat to anyone uh you know just don't be a just don't be a dick basically you know um it's that thing of human to human mm-hmm. he wants to have the the human encounter so i'm keeping this completely human and it's not in the book because it after it went to press the book so the, the the editor of of the book is a guy called Dave Brolin. And Dave used to work for Mojo magazine and Q magazine, the music mags. That's how I know him. And um, <clears throat> Dave was on that shoot. And it was only after we went to press that he said to me, why didn't you say anything in the text about, about the congestion charge moment? And I was like, what congestion charge moment? He goes, oh, don't you remember the conversation you had with him about the congestion charge? <laughs> I was like, no. And then Dave, rem- and then he started to say it. Dave started to remind me. And then it started to suddenly come back. And what it was, was so the shoot was in this arena in um, East London, which it got demolished to make way for the Olympic site. And it was only a few weeks after the introduction of the congestion charge, which was like eight pounds a day to drive in or through central London so we had gone you know i came from sort of west london across london to east london with all the equipment in the cost so we i'd had to pay the congestion charge and i knew that mccartney had a house he's got this house in st john's wood near abbey road that he's had since the 60s that's his sort of house in london so i knew that for him to get to his house to the state the, the arena he'd have to go through the congestion zone as well right <laughs> so dave just reminds me of the whole thing that i'd completely forgotten about in subsequent years but then it all came back and i said to paul in in my attempt to be human to human i said so how long are you over here at the arena because he was his him and his band were rehearsing we're using this arena to rehearse for a world tour of arenas so they weren't playing in this arena they weren't doing any gigs but they had booked it for about two weeks just to do rehearsals in like an arena space so they could get the feel and to run through all the lighting and, you know, basically doing dress rehearsals. Yeah. So he's going to this arena every day for two weeks. And I said to him, you know, how you feel about the congestion charge having to, you know, you've got to pay that every day to get just to get to work. And he's like, what do you mean? And um, I said, well, you know, the, the eight, the eight, um, you've got to pay the eight pounds. Is that a big knock for you? <laughs> and um, This is my attempt, <laughs> my attempt at my dry sense of humor that, falls flat is that a big knock for you the eight quid he said oh yeah no no actually um i uh well i've got a house my house is inside the um no that's i'm a business owner i'm a business owner and my my business address is in the inside the westminster zone so i get i get a discount i get the 90 percent discount off the charge so um it's not a problem and that was the bit that dave really remembered was that (laughs) all The exact words that Paul said were, I get the discount, so it's not a problem. <laughs> and, but we, our attempt at uh, sort of pointing out that this is a man that really doesn't need to worry about an eight pound cost, yeah. um, 
just completely flew over his head. That's yeah. what Dave was, the point was. So anyway, that's where we began. And then, you know, we had this whole thing of him just sort of not really engaging with me on a, on a level that I, I was hoping for. So he was very, he was slightly distracted. There was obviously, there's people all around because the whole crew are there because he's doing this big rehearsal. You know, there's people that need his attention. People have got, you know, the sound got, people have got questions about something or this lighting director wants to ask him about something specific. So we don't have his 100% attention. And what I'm really trying, the, the picture I, I mean, I did get the, the picture I got that's in the book, that, that, that big head, big portrait. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted but to get there was the painful part. Right. And I had to wade through all this kind of him not really being engaged with me, slightly distracted, nice, but distracted. And I was getting more and more flust- frustrated and flustered inside whilst trying to m- maintain swan-like demeanor. And um, it was only really right at the end that I, that I sort of cracked. I, it was me cracking I do remember saying to him, less, less, do less, do less, do less. Because he was just giving me, like, autopilot, Paul McCartney. Yeah. And I was just like, no, 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 just do less. Don't do any of that, do less. And then and then he said this thing to me about, what's the matter, don't you like a bit of whimsy? Because uh, he was being kind of whimsical. and Like, he was giving me slightly silly poses and stuff and making funny faces. And and they said, don't you like a bit of whimsy? And the, and the other thing that was happen, happening in the outside world at the time was the Iraq war, the Gulf War, had, the, in 2003, which just started. Uh, and that had only been, a, that was only a few days earlier that had started. And um, so he said, what's the matter? Don't you like a bit of whimsy? And then I said, not, not when there's a war on, Paul. And I said it in this really, again, it was me trying to be kind of dry, dry and witty. Right. But I think he read it as me kind of admonishing him, you know, almost like saying this, this is no time for whimsy when there's a war on, when actually I was sort of in my head, I was kind of doing it like Captain Mannering from Dad's Army. Right. But it sort of, I think he just misread it. And that's when that picture emerged was at that, that, that hit my response to the whimsy thing. So he gave you that harder kind of look. Yeah, I think he just quite, he just kind of had enough of me. It was like, oh, you know, he'd been nice, been nice, been nice. And then there was a moment where he just thought, I've had enough of this guy now. And there was this three or four seconds where that kind of emerged, that, you know, that, that the way he looks in that picture. Mm-hmm. And I really felt it. I just felt this incredible um, wave kind of come over me. And I just knew, I just realized that's it, that's it, that's it. And I was shitting on a Mamiya RZ667. Six, six, so it's on tripod, it's like waist height. I'm looking, you know, I've got a, you know, waist level finder. And I had been looking through that viewfinder just a frame or two beforehand. And then when he said the thing to me about, don't you like a bit of whimsy? And I said, not when there's a war on Paul. I, I had stood upright and I was looking straight at him. And when that face, I knew that I didn't have enough time to get back down to the waist level finder to check the focus. So I just hit the hit the shutter button straight away and just prayed that it was in focus. And I was shooting at probably like f11. Okay. Anyway, so fortunately for me, it was in focus. And then, uh, yeah, so I, I I took one frame, wound it on, took another frame, really like really fast, you know, like click, fret, advance, click as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. Because I could see the face was there, and I wanted to get it before it 
before it, you know, before it cracked mm-hmm. or broke or changed. And then, and then at that point, I knew that I had to sort of clear the air with him. So I said, okay, you know, I said that's fantastic. That I, I, I said something to him like that's exactly what I wanted. And then I said, just close your eyes, just close your eyes for me, and have a moment to just, you know, have some quiet silence. And he did. He closed his eyes, and I think I took two or three frames. And then I did. T- I did go down to look at the focus, and I could. I knew it was fine. Mm. And then I think that was it. You know, I was like, I got it. Yeah. Um, and then th- there's a, there's a sort of postscript to this story, which I can tell you, which is quite funny, which is that sometime after those pictures were published, someone from his office got in touch about buying the right buying the pictures, and they wanted to buy the copyright, and they wanted the negatives, and they wanted everything, and. I didn't know if it was because he didn't like the pictures or he, he hate, hated the pictures. I had no idea if it was... Is he buying them because he really likes them and he just wants them? Because he's been buying up a lot of stuff over the years quietly. Him and Apple, you know, the Beatles company, yeah. have been buying images of the Beatles and themselves for quite a long time now. You know, They've been buying stuff, rights. I mean, all the stuff from the Get Back film last year. Mm-hmm. They bought all those pictures from it. the photographer that shot those that rooftop gig. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> they bought all the pictures off Ethan Russell, the photographer. So they they own the copyright to all of that now. So I know <clears throat> I know he's he likes he likes to buy things. He's got a big archive and stuff. Anyway, so someone got in touch and said, "Would, would you but sell the things?" And I, but I had no idea if it was because he really liked them and he just wanted to own them, or he's a sort of obsessive completist collector of his own past mm-hmm. or if he just hated them and um but i had a, my sort of paranoid self had a suspicion that he he didn't like that picture and that's why he wanted to buy it but i said no i just you know i i, I remember saying look my 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 right my images my negatives to me are like your song publishing is to you yeah. don't give away your publishing don't give away the rights to the work you've created and they were perfectly nice about it. They were like, yeah, fair enough. We understand. Okay, no problem. And that was it. And then um, sometime a few years later, I was in, I was cycling home from um, the West End and I live in North, used to live in Northwest London. And one Friday night I was cycling home and um, late at night, I'd been out in London. It was summer. It was sort of, I don't know, like midnight, one in the morning. And I, and I was, um, I was trundling along quite, you know, it was very quiet and I went I went up the street he lives in in St John's Wood kind of came around a corner and as I came around the corner into the, into the street where his house is there were this cu- there was this couple walking along the pavement up ahead of me and I instantly heard his voice I recognized it as him they they were walking they were going the same direction as me so they had their backs to me and um I heard it I could hear his voice I knew it was him and as I went past him I remember sort of standing up on the pedals of my bike because it was slightly uphill. And I sort of turned my head to look at them as I went past. And I realised he was slightly pissed. <laughs> and, and as I went past, he just kind of lurched to me, like with a comedy, like fist shake at me. And in the, in this like unbelievable kind of comedy scouse accent, he just goes, hey, go easy there, lad. Keep your eyes on the rolls, will you? <laughs> like that. And I just remember giving him like a little salute and carrying on to the top of the road. And as I went round the bend at the top, I just remember thinking, God, he will never, ever know 
that I am the photographer that took those pictures of him that he probably hates. <laughs> <laughs> it was just this like little kind of moment I had to myself. And then sometime after that, it turned out that this journalist called Paul Dunoyer, who I think has interviewed him more times than anyone else over a 40-year period, did a book of a kind of collection of all his interviews with McCartney. And uh, it turned out that McCartney had the choice, had had control over what the cover image was on the book. And um, uh, he picked one of my pictures. So uh, the publisher got in touch and and said, oh, you know, we want to use a picture of your one of your Paul McCartney portraits for the cover of this book. Is it, can we can we do that? So I said, yeah, sure. So the image on that book is from that shoot. And um, so it's kind of really nice ending to the whole thing that in the end he did he did pick a picture yeah. of mine. Um, so it was a sort of nice, really nice circular yeah. ending to it all. It's an incredible experience, one of countless you must have had. So um, thanks for sharing that, Chris. I want to thank you for your time. It's been over and above what was asked and I appreciate that but I'm super grateful I love the book I hope people check it out um, I love contact sheets as well I really like to see the contact sheets so that's um, always fun but um, let me ask you one more question when do you feel at, at peace with the universe? Ooh I feel at peace with the universe when I have done a shoot and I went into it with the usual kind of feeling of absolute bag of kind of anxiety and nerves. And then everything turned out all right in the end. And when I'm on the journey home, because I live, I live in Oxfordshire now. And so most of my work is still in London. So it's it, to, to drive home is about an hour and a half, two hours, particularly if it's a Friday. There is no greater feeling for me than having done a job on a Friday and gone into it, yeah, anxious and nervous, and then it's gone really well, and I'm on the journey home, and it's the weekend, and there is uh, two-thirds of my journey is on a motorway, and the last third is 20 miles of country roads, and it's the bit when I'm on the between the motorway and home, after the motorway on the country roads, and the weekend's coming, and I'm going back to see my children and my wife and it's friday night <laughs> how about that i don't know if that's the answer you're looking it's for perfect but it's quite specific no it's perfect can relate for sure like i can relate to so many of your stories apart from photographing rock stars but um it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you really really appreciate it oh thanks graham it's been really nice to be here <laughs>